0: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, R. Grant Kleiser. With me today is Professor Simon P. Newman. Professor Newman is currently a Senior Research Fellow at the Institution for Research in the Humanities at the University of Wisconsin. He is also the Sir Dennis Brogan Professor of History, Emeritus, at the University of Glasgow. His research and teaching have generally focused on early modern America, and the British Atlantic world, and he has just this year published a book through University of London Press entitled Freedom Seekers, Escaping Slavery in Restoration London. This work tracks the development of racial slavery and experiences with freedom seeking in London, England from roughly 1660 until the late 1680s. It focuses on many individuals and groups of enslaved people who boldly tried to escape from slavery in a multiracial and cosmopolitan city. Uh, It has so many innovative and creative elements that I am really excited to delve into today. So Professor Newman, thank you so much and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Great. So first off, I'd like to talk about your title and and questions of language. So your title uh, starts with freedom seekers and, you know, using the term freedom seekers rather than, say, runaways or fugitives. And throughout the book, too, you make a point to talk about enslavers uh, and enslaved rather than, say, master or slave. So could you just talk a little bit about how terminology is important to you and why you chose these terms?
1: I think that's a really good question, and it's it's something those of us writing about slavery are, are thinking about a lot these days. And the language we we use can be so loaded with meaning, even if we don't ourselves um, share the interpretation or the 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 resonance a word can have by using it. We can convey things we don't want to. Um, the word "master," I have ended up using in the book. Uh, although if I was writing about slavery in North America, I wouldn't use the word master because it really does convey a legal and um, in the eyes of white people, completely justifiable role for white people over uh, black people. But in London, a great many white people are servants and they call the person they work for master. And so it's a word that isn't defined by race in Britain. So I use the word master. Um, But freedom seekers... Not everyone likes this term, Um, I just think the the, the term runaway slave, which we've used for a long time, uh, it it implies illegality, it implies that the person is doing something, they are running away from an institution that was legally allowable, and it's it's not wrong, it's just a a meaning that uh, it conveys values that we're not entirely comfortable with. Freedom seeker I use because I think it it doesn't necessarily not all of the people I'm writing about were enslaved. They was some were in a in a condition in which they could still be re-enslaved. They weren't fully enslaved, they weren't fully free. Um but what everyone was doing was trying to free themselves from the rule of the person um, who controlled them. Um they were seeking to free themselves, and in such as such they're freedom seekers. So it's a very simplistic term, but in some ways I think it can cover a very broad array of meanings. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's interesting uh, because, you know, your full title is uh, Freedom Seekers, Esca- Escaping Slavery and Restoration in London. And one of the uh, comments or one of the reviews said that you were seeking to restore more than just sort of this idea of restoration on this period of the restoration of the monarchy starting in 1660. But there's actually a more deeper meaning to that uh, that term of restore or restoration um so i think your comment kind of noted on that too um speaking of uh, uh or kind of related uh another you know important i think element of your work uh relates to access so it's it's through the university of london press but it's open access with a free online pdf available uh can you explain sort of why you chose to do this model and and also how you're able to get the publisher to to agree to it
1: um, yes, uh, I'm happy to talk about that. While I was uh, when I was vice president of the for publications and the Royal Historical Society, we developed a new open access monograph series for first time authors in history in the UK, recognizing that um, it, it's going to become required in the UK. If books are going to count in research assessment, which happens every few years um, by which people are judged, they're going to have to be open access. um, in the near future. Um, Articles already have to be open access in the UK. And there there are problems with how this is being done, but the overall objective of making stuff freely available, uh, I think we all agree is is good. If it can be done well, if you can continue to still have good editing, because all of those things cost money, um, to have good editors, to have um, decent control and, and decent input and so forth, Um, The University of London Press are doing that, and they have um, grants which allow them to do this. And one of the reasons I was interested in doing this was the recognition that increasingly, I don't know if this is your experience in teaching, but a lot of students today don't buy many books. And so instructors are are less and less willing to assign books. They assign things that are easily available online to university students. I hope that this will be widely used in teaching because it's free. <laughs> and, and the way it's made of freely available um, means that it's very easy to assign just a chapter or a couple of chapters. And, and I think that's not only great for us here in the US and in Europe, but also it means this book can be used in West Africa and in the Caribbean and other places which don't have access to the expensive um, library resources that we depend on
0: oh exactly and and even students who don't don't yeah don't have access to library resources and are looking for information online quickly available uh having rigorous scholarship available online rather than just you know whatever's on wikipedia or other sort of non peer reviewed sources that's it's really fantastic um so another introductory question then uh you know, a topic that we like, something we like to talk a lot uh, about to the people on our show is is how did you get to this topic, and and where do you think where do you fit yourself uh, into the rest of
1: scholarship uh, on mm-hmm.
0: this subject?
1: That's a, a good question. I've come to it from several different directions, really. Uh, for most of my career, I've been a historian of eighteenth uh, century America. My first book was on parades and festive culture in the period after the revolution. Um, But then after that, I wrote a book on the bodies of of poor people in early national Philadelphia and how we can read their lives through the remaining descriptions of their bodies. And one of those chapters was about freedom seekers, about runaways. Um, And then I was, I was living and working in Scotland and I didn't want to have to come to North America all the time to do research. And I thought, well, this is crazy. I'm living in a, in the UK, which has so many great resources for the study of of the 17th and 18th century Atlantic world. So my next book was on the origins of plantation slavery in Barbados. And um, I used a lot of Royal African Company and related records in Britain. Um, And I was becoming more and more interested in the runaways I'd written about in, in the previous book. And I wrote an article on Jamaican freedom seekers um, for the William & Mary Quarterly. And again, that was a sort of online digital article. Um, and I started, I'd seen occasional references to runaway slave advertisements in Britain. Um, and I started looking and realized that there are a few, and not only that, there are occasionally for sale advertisements And I thought, nobody has really pulled these together and done anything with this. So I applied for and got a a very large grant from the Hume Trust in the UK, which allowed me to hire a postdoctoral researcher and a PhD student. And we spent three years trying to get all of the advertisements we could for the period 1700 to really about 1780. And those are now freely available online on a, a database, the Runaway Slaves in Britain project. Um, Having done that and written some things coming out of that, I started wondering, well, we started in 1700 because I assumed for no good reason that there weren't many before that were there. And so I started looking and that became a project in itself. And there were, but they were almost all in London. The earliest is 1655. And I ended up finding over 200 um, for the period from 1655 to 1704. And I picked 1704 as an end date because that's when the very first runaway advertisement appears in a colonial American newspaper. So there are 50 years of advertisements in London before the first one of, of, of appears in America. So that, that's how that project developed.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, it's it's really, uh, I think, for scholars who study enslavement especially freedom-seeking uh surprising perhaps uh, shouldn't be surprising that there are so so much of a culture of um freedom-seeking but especially these runaway slave advertisements which we can talk more about and the role that that plays in london in england to then inspire the colonies to to affect the same methods of, of trying to um recover their quote-unquote lost property through these methods. Um, another uh, uh, introdu- more introductory question that I'd like to ask you is is that your writing style is, I think, unique, although I think other scholars are trying to uh, to do this in that it really tries to take this perspective as much as you can of enslaved people especially your prologue uh, talking about this enslaved person named Ben who is trying to uh, escape from slavery and using very little source base I mean really just that runaway advertisement to try to get into his head and speak from his voice and I was a pleasure to be a part uh, of that sort of editing process of yours and you're thinking through that uh, at the Omohundro Institute coffee house um, so I just would like to ask you, sort of, um, you know, obviously there are challenges with this perspective and 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 this approach. But how are you able to sort of overcome these challenges uh, to write from an enslaved
1: perspective? Um, yes, that's something I wrestled with a lot because, um, as as I mentioned before, I'd written this article about runaways, freedom seekers in Jamaica, and I used a database of about a thousand advertisements. But not just that, um, there are so many records about enslavement in, J- in Jamaica, um, and mo- many of those records are from the perspective of the white people who kept them, but still, there's so, such a weight of information, so much information, that it is possible to think about what a life was like. Um, we don't have the words of the enslaved in Jamaica quite often, but, but there's enough information to really build up a sense. That's not true in 17th century London. Um, In many cases, we have these advertisements, 70, 80 words, and that's it. That's the only record of that person's existence. And it's not as if I can look at lots of other enslaved people in London to get a uh, say, Okay, this person was probably like those people doing this kind of work in this kind of situation. The information is just not there. Um, So although I spent three years just immersing myself, trying to get a sense of what this world was like, in the end, so much of it is unknown. And guesswork, and I could tell the stories of the enslavers because the records exist, and I could build up a picture, which I tried to do in the book, of the of the world of the people who were bringing enslaved people to London and then were exercising control over them and trying to keep them enslaved and recapture them if they ran away. I can I can build that picture, but the enslaved themselves are still invisible. Um, and there's a growing, as you know, there's a growing literature about the silence of of the archive, Um, and this was a perfect example. So I decided that I would use a little imagination. I would only ever present it as that. um, What might have happened here? Why why would I think this might have happened? And I was encouraged in that because at the same time I was doing this book, I was working with um, Spread the Word, which is a, a youth, writer development agency in london and ink sweat and tears which is um, a poetry publication and we got grant money and we um, funded several young london black um, and south asian poets and artists and i provided them with a lot of information about freedom seekers in 17th and 18th century london and worked with them and then they took them over and tried to give them voice. So this is cre- modern creative um, art. And I can't do that, That's, and it's a different project, but it inspired me to think, yeah, there is a place. And I, I used one of the poems in, um, at the beginning of my book. There is a place for this kind of imagination, and it's not it's not history. But it is inspired by history and it's using historical research and it's, it's saying, let's, let's think about what might have happened. We all do that in our history writing, but sometimes you can push it a little further.
0: Mm-hmm. And and speaking of that, you also worked with uh, not just I mean poets. So there's a a Abena Essa has written uh, contemporary poet has written one to open your book. You've also written you've also worked with actors and filmmakers now to uh, to yes. to kind of bring this
1: story alive as well, yeah. right? And yeah. playwrights. I, I think it's and um in, in many ways it's because once you put these stories once you uncover these stories of freedom seekers, um, they grab people's attention. I'm I'm sure you've used this kind of material in teaching. It always excites students. It's always interesting. So it's not hard to to get people interested in developing films and plays and thinking about this.
0: Yeah, no, that's fantastic. So, uh, kind of moving on to more the the content of the book, the, the meat of, of what you're getting at here, uh, can you just kind of explain for, for our listeners how uh, an African and also South Asian uh, enslaved community came about in London in the 17th century? You know, what, what are the numbers? What are they doing? And this idea of enslaved versus servants that you kind of hinted at before, too. Right.
1: Think, um, set the context. Okay. Well, in terms of numbers, we we don't know. Um, I looked at the parish records, which were called baptisms, burials, and marriages. And for the period from 1600 to 1710, I found just over 700. Um, but it was almost certainly more. It's almost certainly a good deal more. And many of those were probably free people. A few were enslaved. So the enslaved people often aren't in the parish records. It's a transient population because sometimes these people are moving. So we don't know the scale of this population. Um, We we really don't. I mean, we don't know much about the scale of the white population, um, but certainly not the black population. They're coming um, in a variety of ways. Those from South Asia are almost all... And about a fifth of the people in parish records and in runaway ads are are South Asian. Um, They're coming from East India Company ships and trade ships. I think a fair number of them are enslaved. They're often referred to as having been purchased. Um, They are generally boys. There are are some young females, but this is a heavily male population. Um, Those who are um, of West African descent, some are coming from West Africa. Some are being sent by the Royal African Company, and again, they they tend to prefer to send boys, and they're being sent to be personal. They're being sent as gifts to patrons and to officials and to members of the elite who are associated with the Royal African Company. Slave ship captains, and there are hundreds of English slave ships, as you know, working in this time period. Slave ship captains are entitled to have one or two of the enslaved human cargo as their own personal property. Most people will then sell that person on arrival in Barbados or Jamaica or South Carolina or wherever. Um, but some, sometimes people build up a relationship or whatever, and, and they choose to keep the person and bring them back to London. Um, we know a, a little while later, Equiano's story is, is just like that. That's exactly what happens. Um, those people either continue to serve the slave ship captain in London or are passed on to someone else. Um, And some are brought by colonists, um, often planters, um, but sometimes merchants, who either are returning temporarily to London or are returning, um, like say, Henry Drax, who's made his money in Barbados and he's come back very, very wealthy, and his plantations continue to make money in Barbados, but he comes back to London to live. And that's increasingly common in the Caribbean. And he brings enslaved servants with him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so once these enslaved, this enslaved community is is there and working uh, in a variety of different uh, tasks in in London. Uh, obviously, this is a place unlike uh, the colonial context in which. Uh, the ratio of enslaved people or Af- people of African descent, of people of South Asian descent is, is low. And yet there these as you enumerate, as you talk about, uh, these people are able to escape from uh, this enslavement, uh, even, say, without being able to sort of blend into a, a large population. So could you enumerate sort of how what strategies these people are using in this context to enslave, to escape uh, their enslaved or in, enslavers here?
1: Right. Well, again, this is guesswork, um, informed guesswork, but um, a successful escape leaves no records <laughs> because it succeeded. Um, and if, I, if so, so we don't know. Occasionally, there are hints in the in the advertisements as to what people think has happened, because a lot of these are boys or young men. I think one of the, the most common destinations is uh, to serve on a ship. Um, London is just, I mean, it's such a hub for the Atlantic and Asian and larger merchant marine to say nothing of the Royal Navy. And those are very hard jobs. Um, we we think about those in terms of the white working class in England as this is, many people want to avoid this. That's why you have press gangs to get people into the Navy, because people don't want to do it. But there again, um, again, Equiano gives us an example of this, that he, I don't think he ever felt more free and equal than he did while serving on a ship, even at a time when he was actually enslaved because he was an, an equal crew member. And once you become a skilled sailor, and crews aren't that large, maybe 20 people, 25 people on many ships, um, you are judged on how well you do your job because other people's lives depend on it. And so it, it's a, I can see why that could be attractive. So that's one destination. There are growing Black communities south of the river in London and in the East End in particular. Um, Those could be um, venues. This is a huge city um, by the standards of the time. I mean, it's getting towards a million people by by 1700. Um, And that's so much larger than anything in the colony. It's so much larger than most of these people will have experienced. So it is possible to hide. It's possible to run away from a situation in which you are enslaved and then hire yourself out to do this much, the same work, but as a free person who gets a salary just a mile and a half away, which, and you know what a mile and a half in a city is like, you might never run across the person you've run away from. But the final thing to say is that because there aren't many people of color in London, racism, it's a racism exists and it's hard and it's nasty, but it's not the same as it is in the colonies where there is real fear of of black people who are often a a majority of the population in somewhere like Jamaica or Barbados. Um, And so they are treated with brutality and they're kept entirely separate from the white population. Um, That's not true in in England. And so we have plenty of examples of marriages and interracial families. That's not illegal, like it was in the colonies. And what all of that suggests, of course, is that enslaved people in London could form friendships and even romantic entanglements, but friendships and communities with white people who might then, and there are certainly examples I found, including some court cases, where white people will come to the support of enslaved people. Especially if they've been baptized, if they become a member of the congregation, and again, it's easy for them to do that. So that makes escape much more viable, too, because you don't. We we tend to assume someone is running away to a black community. That's not necessarily the case.
0: Mm-hmm. It's it's really fascinating that point there of how it, at this point um, you could say that you know religious affiliation is more important than race uh in, in London uh and the development of this idea of racial slavery that's not fully formed yet um and especially is different in the colonial context as you and, as you just uh, mentioned.
1: And there are actually parallels. I mean Gloria Whiting's work on, on Massachusetts in the 17th century is finding much the same thing that early on people who enslaved people who become full church members in Massachusetts, and a few do. That's it. As far as the Puritans are concerned, they're equal because they they can't their theology won't allow them to view it any differently.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. Uh it's also interesting too this whole idea of maritime enslavement and 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 this is also also something that concerns me in my research a lot too of this this notion that Captains are so desperate for good crew members. And it's, it's fascinating too because, you know, works by people like Chris, uh, Emma Christopher have shown how uh, sailors liken their condition to enslavement sometimes, right? Um, but for the enslaved, that this was a really liberating. Uh, experience for them uh they had some control autonomy respect over over themselves as well too um but you do an you know, interestingly note that some enslaved people were escaping from ships into london as well too um so could you speak more about that too that opposite process of of, of escape right. yeah.
1: well uh, again i think I mean, the the way this trade worked uh, these ships would almost some would have been coming from south asia but most were coming from the Caribbean. They had probably left London, gone to West Africa, gone to the Caribbean or to the American colonies, and then sailed back. It's what we'll come to know as the triangular trade. But they're doing that as much as anything because that's how the ocean, as you know, that's how the ocean currents work. That's the easiest way to do it. It's really difficult to sail to West Africa and to sail directly back to sort of England. Um, so, in if you're aboard a ship in Kingston, yeah. uh, um just off the Jamaican coast, it's not easy to escape. And if you do escape, you're escaping into, into hell. Um, But when you arrive in London, all of the ships have to come to the, all of the goods have to be unloaded at the legal keys, which are the keys just to the um, east of um, the tower uh, London bridge. Um, So even the, the deep sea going ships, they, have to anchor in the river not far from there, and all of their goods have to be inspected and then unloaded by smaller boats. So all of these ships are very close to the heart of this huge city. Um, if, if there's ever a place to escape, this is it, um, because it will be so much easier, and not to say it's easy, but it will be easier than trying to escape into Charleston or um, Kingston or Bridgetown. So I, th- I think that it's understandable why. And you just see the size and the chaos of this city. Yeah. Yeah easy for
0: people to slip away in in the chaos of unloading all the all this cargo um definitely uh so you kind of hinted at this before uh but on on page 59 you have uh data that shows that 90 percent of freedom seekers are male um and obviously as you just said most of these people uh in this enslaved community is male um but do you, do you see that, is, is that why 90% of the insla- of freedom seekers are male or are there other challenges for, for females to, to escape uh, here?
1: I, I suspect there were more enslaved females. Uh, when I looked at the London parish records for this period, almost a quarter were female. Now that's still low by comparison with the um, colonial populations at this time. Um, but it's a lot higher than the um, about 6% female uh, freedom seekers I found. So I think there were probably more enslaved females, but it is so much more challenging to run away um, and so much more terrifying. But I think it's also a function of the fact that um, the people bringing enslaved people to, to Britain and the reason they were bringing them made it much more likely that they were male. Um, the gifts of enslaved people being sent from Africa and sometimes from the colonies were almost all boys, and you see this in the portraits of, of the time um, that it has become that it became um, an emblem of wealth and success in colonial trade or plantation owning or whatever. To have a well dressed black page boy or attendant, um, so they're beautifully dressed in in liveries and uniforms. Um, but they're enslaved, um, and they're boys because they will attend men. So Samuel Pepys has has several of these during the course of, of his career and life, and this, and then say boy would attend him as he went to the um, the Royal Exchange or to the Navy Office or, or and help him running errands and doing things like that. But it, it's showing the rest of society that he's made in this world um, a female servant doesn't have the same function and doesn't show the same thing and can't be as useful in the same way. They can be useful in other ways. Um, but that's why that's the main reason I think why there are so many males is, is because of what they're being used for.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: it's, uh, so moving on to the, the sort of, well, your your main sources, which are runaway slaved adverts, advertisements, uh, and kind of related to <laughs> this new documentary uh, of Ken Burns on Benjamin Franklin, your last chapter talks about how Benjamin Franklin introduced both newspapers and um, runaway slad, slave advertisements to uh, to, the, to the colonies. I mean, he was one of the the, the one of the primary uh, people who brought this this technique over. Uh, do you see sort of uh, colonial newspapers really directly emulating London's slave advertisements Is sort of a, a direct through line from London
1: that you see? Well, yes. And and mm. I think colonial newspapers are emulating mm. everything that they're seeing in, in London and English newspapers. Um, and that would make sense. For for decades, people in the colonies had been reading newspapers from England because they come over on the sh- ships. And that's a source of news. We, we knew that. We knew that people... And we find examples of these early English newspapers that had been held by colonists that are in American libraries today. Um, but at the same time, most of the people like Franklin, um, who publish these early newspapers in the early 18th century, had all been trained in London, or they'd all done some of their training, or they work with people who have been trained in London, like people were are trained by Franklin. Um, So this is where they learned their craft. And uh, advertisements were a major source of income for newspaper publishers in 17th century London. They were were also really interesting, and I hadn't appreciated this till I did the research for this book, that this is a heavily state controlled press. And for most of the second half of the 17th century, the government only allows the publication of one newspaper for much of that time, and it's a government newspaper and reporting on domestic news is is a minefield. You really have to be careful what you say. Foreign news is a bit easier, but the one free space that really isn't play, pleased at all are advertisements, and they grow rapidly as this, um, and people read them, people are really interested. So I, I think it's not surprising that colonial newspapers emulated these English newspapers and that advertisements quickly became important um largely because that's where you make your money um david wallstreicher's work on franklin shows us just how much money he was making from advertisements and about a quarter of them i think um, were runaway advertisements.
0: Oh, enslaved yeah wow that's really fascinating uh the sort of final content question here is do we have any insight on what uh these, the people who actually were successful in, in, in claiming freedom, uh, what their lives were like after? Obviously, it's hard because they're deliberately trying to kind of stay away from authorities, and so sources are hard to come by. But do we have any sort of insight on, on their lives after um, freedom-seeking? Um,
1: frustratingly little. Yeah. Um, there, are, there are occasional hints. Um, and it, I, I try to build a little bit from what I see in Paris records, Um, So I found someone called Henry Drax, um, who I think may have been enslaved and owned by Henry Drax, the white planter, um, who'd come back to London from Barbados about a decade earlier. But on this occasion, the, the black man, Henry Drax, and his wife were baptizing their child in a London parish. And you think, well, she's white. He may have been enslaved. And they are baptizing a child in this parish. He's a Londoner. Um, he is. He has created a life for himself in this community. I don't know what he was doing, um, but he was doing sufficiently well to be able to to do this. Um, that's that's where you want to imagine. That's where you want to wonder about what kind of life people could be creating for themselves. I don't think few were successful enough to to rise in the records to show um, to show themselves again. Uh, they don't appear, but then that's true for ninety five percent of white Londoners at this time period. So there's no difference there. We do, as the eighteenth century develops, we see more and more black people in the um, Old Bailey criminal records. Um, but that's to be expected that we see an awful lot of white people in those records too. So there's no, it's not that the black people were disproportionately uh, represented, but it shows in the descriptions of them, they, they're coming from the lower ranks of society and uh, we see the problems that people faced. So we're guessing really um, they, in a sense they disappear, but I think the important thing is that this there had always been there for a long time. There had been people of color in London, but I think this is when a permanent black London population begins. And it's been there ever since. Um, and that's an important thing to, to say in, in British history. It's something that's long been forgotten. It is. It is.
0: So the final question we have that we like to ask all our authors is, Are there, is there anything new on the horizon? Uh, any new publications that you'd like to promote
1: right now? Um, not a new publication as yet, but I'm, I'm sticking with freedom seekers. And with um, Gloria Whiting here at UW Madison and Billy Smith at Montana State and Emma Hart at the McNeil Center in Philadelphia, we're beginning the development of a project on um, freedom seekers and the American Revolution generally. But we'll look at the two centuries or so of freedom seekers, where we, we try and write stories about. and this will be a web-based publication, Um, short stories, or or not so much, not fictional stories, but short accounts based on single runaway advertisements. And then once we get this project up and running, we're going to encourage people to write in their own, where they take an advertisement or a a small number of advertisements and write up the story that's buried in there. because it's been so much fun doing this. And we think it's really important to talk about this element of freedom in the period of the, of the American Revolution as we approach the 250th anniversary.
0: Exactly. I was just about to say that it's, it's a very timely project with the 250th anniversary coming up and really uh, demonstrative of the scholarship, how the scholarship is, is progressing um, as we approach that anniversary. And we're looking forward to, to seeing that in print and on the web there. So many thanks, uh, Professor Newman, for your time today. Uh, There's so much more that we could talk about, but I don't want to, uh, I want to leave some for the book. So I encourage you all to uh, pick up a copy or look on on the web for the open access PDF of Freedom Seekers Escaping Slavery in Restoration London. Uh, This is our Grant Kleiser saying thanks so much for tuning in and see you next time.